Well, good morning, Arbor. It's so good to see you here this morning. Today is a continuation of the series that we're in, Summer with Jesus. And I'm telling you, when we dreamcasted the series, <laughs> we were just thinking, what more could we want this summer than to just saturate ourselves with Jesus? We wanted to spend time with him and know his teaching, his heart. We wanted to feel his love for us, and we just thought, let's put away everything that's a bummer, and let's focus on the summer with Jesus. We thought about graphics that could go with it. We thought, oh, you know, hand in hand on a mountain trail, enjoying God's creation, right? Or for some, they were picturing more like a kumbaya campfire, crackling campfire thing. Um, there may have been one staffer who thought more about two beach towels and two little umbrella drinks, his and mine, uh, you know. However we picture spending the summer with Jesus, that is what we wanted to do. But we didn't really think that we would spend time in a summer cemetery. You know, cemeteries don't seem to like go on brand with summer, do they, right? We think more, summer should be sun and not shadow. Playtime, not pain time. We, th we think about light hearts, not heavy hearts. But interestingly, even though it's still summer right now, today, many of us are finding ourselves in a summer cemetery either literal or figurative. I'm an ex-school teacher, so I, I can't teach without a prop. <laughs> this, is my, this is my cemetery here. Uh, here's my tomb, and I'm gonna seal it up, all right? What I would love to do before I seal it up, I want you to identify a time, maybe that you're in right now, where there's something that seems like something is dying or that you are grieving the loss of something. Maybe it's something that's in your rearview mirror and like it's something that has happened in the past that you're still wrestling through. Or maybe you see something dying in front of you and you feel like it, it, it's time to be in a, in a cemetery for that one thing. It could be... Um, the loss of a dream. It could be the loss of a relationship or a marriage. It could be the loss of hope. Um, whatever it is, I want you to enter into this passage today in the cemetery, and I want you to be thinking about that thing that you're working through, okay? Our passage takes place in John 11. John 11, and it finds us in a cemetery, not just with Jesus, but a few of his besties. And these are people that you're probably familiar with. It's not the 12 disciples. Um, they hung out for sure with him a lot. But these are people that Jesus absolutely loved hanging out with. Their, their home was close by. And you may think about a time you loved a house that was close by. Maybe it was somebody in your neighborhood. You knew that you could help yourself to the snacks in the fridge. You would fall asleep on their, on their couch watching TV. It was like home to you. It was a good hangout, and you loved the people there. This is that place for Jesus. And you probably are familiar with their names. It's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
I'll introduce those guys to you also so you can identify not just maybe with something that might be over here in the tomb, but you can kind of walk through this passage with me and identify with one of the characters. So Martha, well, first I should tell you, we see these siblings in three um, scenes throughout the arc of Jesus' story. You may remember first there was a story about hospitality. They were hosting Jesus over for a night, and um, Martha was super grumpy with Mary because she wasn't doing her end of the chores, right? So it's that story. It's that family. (laughs) So that was one scene. The scene that we're in right now is the cemetery scene, and then there's another scene that we'll refer to briefly at the end this morning. But in this scene... We have Martha, who is kind of the classic firstborn. How many firstborns are here in the room today? Yes, okay. So so all of you, I don't know, you might identify with Mary. She was like the get-her-done girl, right? Like she took leadership. She was super outspoken. She called a spade a spade, as they say. She... um, she took charge. She called people up to a higher standard. Uh, I, she could be a Enneagram one. Um, so this is Mary, Martha. And then Mary is different. Mary is more the contemplative, emotionally expressive girl. She's inwardly processing so much. And she also is a learner. So she defied sort of the cultural norms of that time, which is, hey, the girls are in the kitchen serving the men, but actually in scene one, we had found Mary learning at Jesus' feet. She calls him teacher, rabbi. She's there soaking in all that she can of his teachings, which is actually not permitted at the time for girls to have an education. So Martha the boss, Mary the disciple, and then Lazarus. So Lazarus, I was thinking, like, how can I best describe him in all those three scenes? The best I could come up with is vanilla ice cream. He's, he's vanilla ice cream. The guy, like, things happen all around him, but he's, like, not the guy, like, he's not the point. Do, do you ever feel like vanilla ice cream just carries the hot fudge, it carries the whipped cream, or that carries the apple pie? But it's, like, it's not, like, the point, right? Anyhow, okay, so that was my best, <laughs> my best description of Lazarus. He's there, but kind of stuff more important is happening around him rather than, like, him. So, okay, let's dive into our passage. Okay, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. The brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, hey, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. So Bethany's only two miles away from Jerusalem, right? And the sisters probably expected that when they texted him or sent a messenger, shortly he'd be there, right? It might take him half a day, potentially, but like he would be there in a minute. They didn't explicitly say what their expectation was of him in that. They didn't say, hey, come heal him. Hey, hurry and come before Lazarus slips away. They thought like Jesus would know, and they definitely did know this. They knew that Jesus was a healer. They had seen him heal the blind, the paralyzed, um, the demonic. So they knew that like whatever Lazarus was working with here, is struggling with, 
that would fall under Jesus' capacity to heal. So imagine if you've ever called 911 for help and you've got your, pas- your, your patient here and you're like, don't worry, they'll be here in a minute. And then you look at the window and you're like, where is help? <laughs> like, shh, it's okay. He'll be here in a sec. And then, and then there's no sign right? You realize how that feels, like your adrenaline is surging, right? Even though you're trying to stay calm for the guy, you're also like a little bit panicking. So hope remains just enough to think, surely he'll be here in time because he loves Lazarus. He loves Lazarus. But when Jesus heard, got the text, when he heard about it, he said to his disciples, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, this happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God would receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Two days. (laughs) Two days. Can you imagine being those sisters? Waiting two days? Can you imagine waiting for an ambulance for two days? right? This doesn't feel good on the inside. You're thinking, I I kind of expected he would do better. You know, I kind of expect, he's Jesus, kind of expected better. To the sisters, these were two days too late. It was too late. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I'm going to go wake him. The disciples said, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, like, he'll, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus literally meant that Lazarus was sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, yeah, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, because now you're really going to believe. Come, let's go see him. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had been in his grave for four days. Wow, (laughs) four days already in the grave. What is the significance of that? Ancient custom for the Jews back then was that they believed a spirit might linger around a body for the first couple of days after a death. That maybe there would be a re-entry, like maybe there would be kind of a last minute like change of mind and spirit would re-enter and life come back. But when you're four days gone, even the Jews back then, even the most hopeful, they knew that decomposition had already set in and that there was no hope for the spirit. The spirit would have already gone. He would already gone. I, I thought about, I mean, this is, seems weird, but it came to me in the middle of the night. Remember in Princess Bride when they were like, oh, he's almost, or he's, how did they say it? Mostly dead. That's right. <laughs> Mostly dead versus all dead. So anyhow, I kind of thought about that difference between like when you're mostly dead, like maybe there's a chance you could come back. But like when you're all dead, like Lazarus, four days, four days, you're gone, right? So when I look over this room here, I know that there are some stories here that you guys have wrestled with in your own lives and you have felt like there was a four-day death in your marriage or in your finances, in your ministry, or your health. It felt like it was four days gone. There was no chance 
Zero chance of anything coming back to life. You prayed, you asked others to pray for you, you, you begged the Lord to somehow make a way when there was no way, but then a deadline passed. The money was gone. The marriage was over. It seemed like Jesus did not turn up in the same time frame you would hope for. It was two days late. Actually, it was four days late. Too late. So what can we learn from Jesus in the summer cemetery at this point of our story? I think we can learn that Jesus often has plans that are different than our own. The sisters had a plan. They thought, we're, we're going to send a message, and in time Jesus will come and fix it. And actually he didn't. He had a plan that was different than their own. So Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. There was a big crowd, lots of followers. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary, she stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Ouch. (laughs) Right? She's got a point. Ouch. When the sisters heard that he was in the neighborhood getting close, Martha, that firstborn, initiative-taking kind of gal, went out there for some straight talk. (laughs) Right? She's like, I'm going to say the thing. The thing is that we expected you earlier. And like, if you had been here, this would not have happened. We wouldn't be at a cemetery. I thought about about Martha's approach, and then I also thought about Mary. And we're going to talk more about grief responses in our podcast on the follow-up this week. But I wanted to acknowledge that even though Mary is in the house, she's probably journaling and, you know, kind of staring out the window, watching the leaves fall. Um, that's what I did after my mom, or no, sorry, after my dad died. I could just only watch the leaves fall for like hours on end. I, I couldn't really even cope with what had happened. But on the follow-up this week, we're going to talk about how grief responses are different, but there's not one that's right or wrong, right? Mary and Martha have different approaches based on their uh, personalities and their relationship with Jesus. But Martha's out there and she's like, dude, if you had been here, if you had been here. Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But you know, even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. So her faith is still intact, right? And Jesus said, your brothers will rise again. Martha said, yeah, I know, I know. He'll rise when everyone else rises on the last day. Sigh. I think she heard him say that Christian axiom that many people say in grief, which is like, you know what? Don't be sad. I know he's dead. Don't be sad, though. Like, you'll see him again in heaven. And Jesus is like, actually, yes, that is true. Yes, but no. Like, yes, that's true, but I actually have something else in mind when I say that. What I mean is like, he's going to, he's, gonna live now. There's life now, not just in heaven for him. And this is what we also learn from Jesus. We learn that Jesus promises life. 
and it doesn't always look the way that we thought it would be, right? She thought when he said this, it meant at the end of the age. And this is what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? I also love how another translation said, Martha, you don't have to wait until then. (laughs) I am the resurrection and I am life eternal. This means you never die forever. Isn't that an amazing promise? He's promising life. And by saying I am the resurrection, which is like you will live forever in eternity, I'm also giving you life now. I have life in me. Yes, Lord, she told him, I've always believed that you would, that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world. And this is her verbal confession of faith. She believes him to the fullest degree that she knows how. She knows him in her teaching. She knows that he's going to be the Messiah, right? She doesn't know that he's about to raise her brother. Oh, that was a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. (laughs) She doesn't know what he's about to do, but she believes him to the fullest degree that she knows how in this moment. So she decides to go get Mary. She calls Mary aside from the mourners and told her, hey, the teacher's here. He wants to see you. And Mary immediately went to him. I love that Martha called him the teacher in this moment because I remembered that first scene where the family was all together and she was a little bit grumpy that Mary was learning from the teacher and it felt like she was a little bitter, actually. But now I feel like it's a term of endearment. Like, hey, the teacher's here. Like, he's our teacher, yours and mine. And I I feel like there's been a healing or a character growth by this point. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to go to the grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, "Um, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So that's the second time, right, that the sisters, the, finally the sisters agree on something, right? They may be different in personality and how they live their life, but they can agree on one thing. Like, Jesus, come on. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I'm seeing emotional honesty from these girls, these women. And what do we see from Jesus as they're pouring out the straight, hard truth about how they're feeling right now, what is his response? Is he rebuking them? Is he correcting them? Is he silencing them? Like, hey, you kind of got your theology wrong there. Like, or is he saying like, shh, shh, you'll see him in heaven. <laughs> no, he's giving space for them to bring their full emotional honesty to him. And he is going to respond himself. And this is something else we're going to learn about Jesus in the summer cemetery. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. 
Jesus responds to their pain and his own. He, he has empathy. He's in the presence of pain, and he's not rebuking or correcting or scolding or even giving platitudes about the future. He just is engaging their pain, and he's weeping with them. He's empathizing. The word here about the deeply moved and troubled spirit, the, the word that is used is the same as waters that are churned or, or waters that are stirred. And so when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, have you ever driven down the 520 bridge in a storm? And you're driving, and weirdly, one side of the bridge is like calm, like the water's calm. But boy, where the storm is coming up or is coming from, there's white caps, right? And spray is like spraying over the top of your car and over the bridge. It's stirred up, it's troubled. And I, I, I think of that even when I think about Jesus weeping, because it wasn't like this really little, just teeny tiny, like, oh, I feel a little bit of emotion and my eyes are glistening and my lip is a teeny bit trembly. Like, it's not that kind. It's like he's weeping, right? The storm, the white, he's got some white cap emotion here, right? He's feeling their pain. Scholars think about this and they wonder, like, is the reason that he felt this pain just because he, he he's empathizing with the sisters who he loved? Or is he experiencing death and the consequence of sin, which is death? Like he's experiencing the loss of his friend right now. And so C.S. Lewis has a, has a quote about this, that maybe it's a combination. We follow one who stood and wept at the grave of Lazarus, not surely because he was grieved that his friends were weeping, and sorrowed for their lack of faith, though some thus interpret. But he is weeping because death, the punishment of sin, is even more horrible in his eyes than in ours. Right? Like he gets this on a completely different level than we get it. And it causes pain. And mind you, this is even while he still knew he was going to raise Lazarus, right? He knew what he was going to do. He had called that billiard shot, you know, before he hit the cue ball. He had called that way back when he said this illness wouldn't end in death. Your brother will live. Like he called the shot. And he still is grieved with the, with the presence of death and the consequence of sin and the separation that it causes. So I, I love knowing that Jesus is that empathetic, even in the presence of knowing there's a miracle around the corner. He weeps in the summer cemetery. He responds to us with empathy. He makes space for us to feel what we need to feel. He's experiencing it as fully God, fully man. And as Hebrews says, this is our great high priest who is able to empathize with our weakness. He responds with empathy. So meanwhile, like what's everybody else seeing here? Like there's a crowd watching this all happen, right? And John writes that some of the people were like, whoa, see how much he loved Lazarus. Like he's weeping. Like this guy must have been really special to him. But you know what? There were other people in the crowd, as there always are. <laughs> there were other people in the crowd who were like, dude, this guy, 
he's, he's healed blind people. Couldn't he have healed Lazarus? Like, why is he dead? Like, you know, anyhow, those people, those same people are going to stay in the crowd and have quite a shining moment later too. So anyhow, just, you know, the crowd. Jesus, again, deeply moved within, came to the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll it aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the Enneagram one, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, Lord, he's been, he's been dead for four days. Like, the smell is going to be terrible. You don't want to do this. The decomposition had set in. The spirit had left the vicinity. And so, so straight-talking Martha, we see her again. But Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? And so they rolled the stone aside. Exhibit A. (laughs) Ever the teacher. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I am saying this out loud for the sake of all the people standing here because I want them to believe that you sent me. He's saying it out loud. So... Back then, when magicians would do a little sorcery, they would kind of mutter under their breath about what they were about to do. That way, there was no accountability, right? Because you didn't know, like, if nothing happened, nobody would really know what they had said. But Jesus is, like, making it clear. It's like calling that, that pocket shot or whatever the billiard thing is. Like, it's so impressive when people do that, right? And they make... They call their shot and then they do it. This is what he's doing. He's saying it out loud. And why? He's doing it so that people will know who he is and know who who the Lord is, right? And know who God is. So he prayed loud enough for the whole crowd to know what was about to happen and that they would believe. And sure enough, it happened. Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet, bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told him, take off the grave clothes, let him go. And scene. <laughs> Amazing, right? Can you imagine being in the presence of such a miracle, right? Surely everyone would believe, correct? Well, Interestingly, John writes, he doesn't write about the reaction of the sisters in this moment. I would think like if I was writing a story, I'd be so interested in like, what was the response from Mary and Martha? Was it amazing? I actually, and the answer is no, John doesn't write this. So I'm thinking I have to fill in the gaps myself. I'm picturing Martha runs home to get Lazarus some clean clothes and she makes him a meatloaf, you know, for dinner. She's about to like host the celebration. So she goes into full like, Martha mode. Mary, I'm like, I'm picturing her taking a million selfies and journaling and like not able to let go of his arm because she just can't believe her brother's back, right? And she's just like so stoked and journaling and posting and all that. So, but here's what John does, does explain is the reaction from the crowd, (laughs) the crowd. I actually, I had not really taken much time to notice this before, and it touched me a a bunch this week. Um, So first, lots of people believed when they saw this. You know, who couldn't, right? The guy is raised from the dead, four days dead. 
But you know what? There were other people in the crowd who were still not on board with the things of God and the things of goodness. Um, They went and they tattled, for lack of a better word, they told, they informed the Pharisees what had happened here. And you know what happened after that? Jesus' public ministry came to an end because of that, because of the tattling or whatever, the informing. (laughs) I don't know if they had the ulterior motive to like shut it down or maybe if they just felt like it was their responsibility, like we should go tell the Pharisees. But it bred in the Pharisees an insecurity. It set in motion a plot for Jesus's death. And so after this point, There was no public ministry. I wept this week as I realized that because I was thinking these people who came against something good and godly stopped such amazing, they they stopped healing. Like Jesus was not able to go around healing or teaching the masses anymore to sit on hillsides with children and loving on them, right? And pouring out like his public ministry. I know it had to happen sometime because that was the will of God, but it just, it crushed me that people could, could force an end to something so good and godly. And I hadn't realized that before. I had not realized the connection between Lazarus's tomb and his raising and the end of Jesus's public ministry. So I want to pause for a moment before I give you a what now about the sisters, like a follow-up of this story. They're mentioned one more time, like I had, meant, I had said before. But I want to refer back to this grief that you had imagined at the beginning for yourselves when you were in the summer cemetery. You might be thinking like, oh, how nice. How nice that Martha and Mary got their brother back. So nice for them. But like... That's not true for me. We may still be wrestling with our four days in the grave grief. So what do we think about during that time while we're considering that? We know that Jesus has plans different than our own. We know Jesus promises life. We know Jesus responds to our pain with empathy. We know Jesus is focused on God's glory and Jesus keeps promises. But short of our situation resurrecting and coming fully back to life, how are we to respond to Jesus in this moment? I want you to consider two things. One, (laughs) there are some things that only the resurrection can make right. Christ's resurrection was another promise that he kept. And he promises that all things would be made new. That means your earthly death is not the end of the story. And some things will be reconciled on heaven's shore and not here on earth. The number two consideration, consider that the life-giving work of the Lord might come unexpectedly or in an unexpected way. Okay, so remember when Martha and Jesus were talking and Jesus was like, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. She's like, yeah, yeah, I I know. And I know I'll see my brother again sometime in heaven for eternity. And he was like, yeah, there's more to it though. (laughs) 
there's more to it, right? Not only are you going to have eternal life, I'm going to give you life now. I'm going to give life now. So, anyone who teaches here at Arbor has to engage scripture for themselves before they teach and expect there to be like anything real about it. And so last week after I had prepared my message, I was talking with the Lord about a couple different ways that I could show an example from my life about this scene. And um, I felt challenged in a way, but I also felt like um, he was able to really minister to me in that. So I want to share that story with you as well. Last winter, a crisis brought a death blow to a couple friendships of mine. And I, with my broken heart, angrily put that friendship in a tomb. And I sealed it up, and I added to it any other stone that I could find. (laughs) I wanted it buried. And I told the Lord, like, hey, I'm fine if you want to reconcile this on heaven's shore and not on earthly ground. Like, that is totally fine with me. I'm happy to keep those friendships (laughs) there. And I will wait for your reconciling work in heaven, for sure. I'm fine with that. Because there's some things only the resurrection can make. (laughs) Right, Jesus. But Jesus has different plans than my own. And he promises life. Right? He's not saying, Allison, I want you to like really thoroughly enjoy this built up cemetery and this nice tomb that you've like put, you know, it definitely death is, is present here, right? So he's saying, I promise you life, Allison. I want more for you than just this. And even in cemeteries, he's able to bring life. So he responded to my pain with empathy. He gave me space to be honest about my pain, and he never silenced me. He let me weep at his feet, and he let me say hard things. Like, if you had been here, this would not have happened. He stayed with me while I raged and wept, and he stayed with me while I healed. I want to be focused on God's glory for sure. And you should know that it appears as if God's glory, stone by stone, is being made known the more I take away and the more life he's giving back to what I thought was buried forever. He is being glorified. He's being known, maybe not from other people, but he's being made known to me on earth as it is in heaven. So I kind of feel like I'm witnessing resurrection in my own (laughs) life-ish. And trust me, nobody's more surprised about that than me. If this glorifies God, then I am for this plan. So in closing, I want to just find out where the sisters are in their story. Where's, where's the vanilla ice cream, right? Where's, where's Lazarus? <laughs> See around. Actually, the very last scene that these three are mentioned, it's at a dinner table again. And the thing that had separated Jesus from his public ministry, it was that plot against him for his death, right? After he had raised Lazarus, he went low-key, right? Because he knew everybody's looking for him to kill him. But Palm Sunday was about to happen. Do you remember Palm Sunday? He comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds are waving palm branches. This is the night before that, okay? Okay? 
So imagine Jesus. He's been low-key because he knows people are going to kill him. And he knows that the next day he's going to be shown in, in the city. And everybody's going to know where he's at. Like, there's that big target on your back, right? So the night before that, who does he choose to spend time with? It's the, his friends, his besties. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They're at dinner again. And what's happening? Well, there's vanilla ice cream. Just Lazarus is hanging out. He's having a relationship with, with Jesus and the rest of the people, with his followers. They're hanging. Martha, she's serving dinner. And guess what? She's not complaining, right? She's serving with joy. She has been given life in a summer cemetery, right? The life of her beloved brother. And now she's like, super happy to serve. She's giving, she's been given life in a way and she's pouring it back out on Jesus, happily serving, not grumpy, not, not getting out all over Mary. <laughs> and speaking of Mary, so where is Mary? Well, I love, I love Mary. We have seen her sitting at Jesus's feet to learn. We've seen her weeping at his feet to mourn. And here's the passage that talks about what she's doing now. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The whole house was filled with with that fragrance. She's learned from him at his feet. She's wept on his feet, and now she's pouring out the most valuable thing she has in order to anoint him before his burial, or before his death, which is impending. These siblings had received healing and life in a summer cemetery. They're in relationship with him. They're serving him, and they're generously giving the best that they have to him. I'd like for you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to identify yourself once again in this story. Maybe you're standing in a summer cemetery and you sense that God's nearby, making himself known to you. Like his words to Martha, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. Do you believe this? Do you believe me? This is your chance to answer. Like Martha, you might think that belief in Christ means life eternal, and that's it alone. But by saying yes to him today, yes, I believe you. You're giving him consent to bring life-giving work into your life, starting now and until the day that you step into eternity. Maybe you're standing in a cemetery and you're not trusting Jesus because you want a miracle of your own. You're like, well, of course it was great for Mary and Martha, but I want one. And you think to yourself, if he does this one thing, then I'm going to believe him. Hey, friend, there were those in the crowd standing next to Jesus himself, watching Lazarus, four days dead, rise again. And they still didn't believe There were those who watched Jesus die on a cross and raise again, and they still didn't believe. Is that you? 
Do you need a miracle to be witnessed on your own terms for you to trust him? If so, I'm going to be praying this week for you that you recognize a time in your life that God actually has done a miracle for you. And maybe you didn't recognize it at the time or maybe your memory's bad. But I want you to re- remember a time Jesus repaired a relationship, paid a bill unexpectedly, that you conceived a child, that you showing up at Arbor today are hearing these words And maybe just the miracle today is that you woke up alive. Jesus has done miracles for you, friend. I want you to recognize that as if you're recognizing who an anonymous gift was from, where you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was you. Thank you. That is my prayer for you, not just right in this moment, but for this whole week that you'd be seeing that. And then lastly, you might be sitting in a summer cemetery and thinking, Jesus, I've walked with you a long time. You and I are besties. And you still aren't showing up for me the way I, I need. And I want to pray for all of us right now, whichever you find yourself in. Let's pray. Jesus, We know that you're here with us today in this summer cemetery. And we have expectations. Help us believe, Lord. Fill fill our unbelief, Lord. Replace that with belief, trust in you. Show us, like unveiling our eyes, show us your faithfulness so that we can recognize, like, oh my gosh, it was you all along. And this miracle I receive and I believe. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that not only are you going to give me eternal life, but you are going to breathe life into this cemetery situation even today. It's your glory, God, that we want. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.